The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Continuous Dream presents Wells and Wells, based on a true story. Starring Pete Blatchford as H.G. Wells and Johnny Kalita as Orson Wells. It's a rainy October night at a motel in San Antonio, Texas, 1940. Diamond Blast, just a moment. Good evening, Mr. Wells. I'm here as a peace offering. I'm sorry, do I know you? I'm Orson Wells. Ah, I should have known your voice. I'm here to, as we say in America, bury the hatchet. Would you like to come out for a drink? No, I don't think so. I was just... May I come in? It's rather wet out here. I really don't think there's anything to say. You would turn me out in the rain? I thought English gentlemen were known the world over for their unfailing politeness. Then you may be interested to know I'm not above calling you a little shit and closing the door in your face. Mr. Wells! I'm shocked! And you might be interested to know that I am very persistent. And I have a gift for you. I didn't come empty-handed. You must be more curious than that. I beg your pardon? Don't you want to know what I have for you? Haven't I made myself clear? I know you're interested because you didn't lock the door. Would a lock hold you back? Everyone likes an unexpected gift. No one likes an unexpected interruption. I was at your speech tonight. I know how you respect reason and the intellect. What I offer is a gift of the intellect. I am getting soaked. Very well. Come in quickly, but I am busy. Quite a drizzle. Reminds me of the night I was in Ireland. I was sleeping on the beach, the wish-wash of the waves lulling me to sleep. I was with the donkey I'd hired to tramp the hills outside Galway. When suddenly the sky opened and we were properly drenched, there was nothing but to load up and move on. And I found my way to a barn where a Kaylee was going on. You know what the word Kaylee? I have heard of it. Such a nice word. In America, we'd call it a hootenanny. Mr. Wells. It must have been about two in the morning, and the party was in full swing. I was dry in no time, and the donkey appreciated the bed of straw they fixed up for him in the corner. I never felt more welcome anywhere than Ireland. Have you been to Ireland? No. What a shame. Like visiting the moon, another world. Quite. What is it that I can help you with, Mr. Wells? <laughs> help me? Oh, no, not at all, old chap. I just came to apologize and make my peace with you. I was a naughty boy. I took your story and adapted it for my little radio show without, well, seeking your permission about changing it. Quite. I haven't forgotten you wanted to sue me. It was two years ago. Almost to the day. The very day. And I didn't sue you, so you needn't have bothered. You see, Mr. Wells, I just get these enthusiasms and get carried away. I'm like a child sometimes, and I loved War of the Worlds. I felt it belonged to me, because I loved it so. But it did not belong to you. No, of course not. It's not in the public domain. I'm not dead. You're in the prime of your life. I'm 75. Wonderful. I'm 25. I must seem like a boy to you. Not really. No? Well, 
Anyway, how about if we go out to this nice little tavern, a pretty little pub down the way, and drink to, I don't know, not being dead. I'm not much of a drinker, and as it's rather drizzly out, I... It is rather a deluge, isn't it? You said you had a gift for me. Ah, yes. This is a ticket to my speech tomorrow night at the Ladies' Amateur Dramatic Club. Gentlemen, welcome also. I hope to see you there. Very thoughtful, very touching. How about that drink? Here, I'll tell you what. The men at the brewery where I made my speech tonight gifted me with a bottle of Kentucky bourbon. Why don't you take it back to your room and you can enjoy it while the rain pours down? Old chap. You don't mean I should drink it alone. I'm not my father's son to that degree. Oh, uh, I see. Why don't we crack it open and have a toast to artistic collaboration? This will be a treat if you've never had real Kentucky bourbon. To immortality. Immortality? The immortal arts. Cheers. What brings you to San Antonio, Mr. Wells? I came to give a speech to the Brewers Association. Yes, I was there. You weren't following me. <laughs> following you? No. I happen to be on a lecture tour myself. Amazing coincidence. Our both being here. One for the history books. At any rate, I enjoy touring the country. Don't you? It's always interesting as a journalist. A journalist? Do you consider yourself a journalist, foremost? Yes, I do. It should have been obvious from my articles these past few years. Fascinating. I'm playing a journalist in the motion picture I'm making. We're calling it Citizen Kane. I play the owner and editor of a newspaper. If you're in the middle of making this film, why are you suddenly touring the country giving lectures? Ah, it's simple. I'm running out of money. RKO won't give me the next chunk of their investment until we're editing. And I'm still shooting, and I'm low on cash, don't you know? But once this movie is done, you see, I will have investors lining up. I'll never be a struggling artist again. You were poor once, weren't you? I had some difficult jobs as a boy. Right. You had to struggle to stake your claim. That's right. And do you understand journalism, Mr. Wells? What do you mean? The search for the truth. Oh, yes. Truth. What is truth? You take it lightly, don't you? No, not at all. I just don't think truth is very much fun. Besides, you, you one man's truth deal is another man's poison. When you had fun with you your know. radio broadcast. Well, that was certainly all in good fun. Create the legend that your radio play resulted in panic. It did, old chap, but I never meant... I don't know what's worse, to toy with people's fears or to lie about how widespread the panic actually was. Lie? My dear Mr. Mr. Wells. Mr. Wells, shall we get to the point? The point? There must be a reason you've invaded my... Room and invaded. Oh, chap, I've me. hardly invaded. Disarm you. You apologized and I accepted your apology. Did you? I don't recall you accepting anything. But you're still here, so what is it exactly you're looking for? Well, the thing is, there's a radio station here that somehow got wind of the fact that we're both in town at the same time. And they'd like to do a joint interview. The two of us. And I thought, what a capital idea that is. What a great bit of publicity for us. I don't need publicity. Everyone needs publicity, Mr. Wells. Haven't you ridden my coattails enough? I stood on the shoulders of a giant. 
Well, I won't be manipulated. Of course not. I'm not interested in rehashing your little spree of two years ago. It's water over the dam. People still talk about it. Soon forgotten and for the best. Mr. Hitler mentioned it in his Munich speech. A sign of the decadence of our Western democracies. Not our. You're on your own in this. Am I supposed to be proud of this bastard child of my book? I'd be happy never to hear of the War of the Worlds again. We made history, Mr. Wells. It would be my worst nightmare only to be remembered for something I wrote almost 50 years ago, at the beginning of my career. I've written many books. The Time Machine. The Invisible Man. The Island of Dr. Moreau. Classics. All of them. Those were all from my early days. I was your age, or only a bit older. How would you like it if your most famous venture was, for example, your production of Julius Caesar or your radio play? What if this movie you're making was the peak of your career? Peaked at only 25. Peaked? I, I haven't started. Nor have I. Listen to me now. The truth is, we never stop feeling that way. No matter how far we've come, it's... As if we're just starting every time. I feel no differently. Every new project feels as fresh and new as the first because we don't stop having new ideas. That fire never burns out. There's always a fresh match in the box, always a new wick to light. We aren't young or old. We are always being born every day with new eyes, new ears. That's our mission, our obligation, and... Our joy. Thank you for saying our. I'm honored. Yes, I included you. Perhaps not yet, but you'll earn the right eventually. I can only hope for a long career like yours. You want my advice? Yes. Stick with the truth. Be honest with others and yourself. I hope I am. Are you really? You'd have to prove it to me. Here. There must be a Bible here somewhere. I'll promise on this Bible. I don't believe in any Bible. I don't have a Koran. This newspaper. You respect journalism. Hold it out. I solemnly swear on this newspaper, the emblem of truth, that I will be honest with you. Trustworthy, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. You aren't quite serious. I promise. I don't want some Boy Scout oath. What do you want? At the moment, a secretary. I've rented this typewriter, and it, it's an infernal contraption. The typewriter? I've been typing since I was a child. I'd be happy to type up your essay. But it's stopped. It won't type. The damn thing is broken. You have to rewind the ribbon. Rewind? It comes to the end, and you rewind it. See? What a nuisance. Is this progress? Give me a pen any day. The lovely scratch of the paper. <laughs> For a man who sees into the future, it's ironic. You grew up with this technology. How can you think over this clatter? I love to think over the clatter. That staccato punch, pounding out one's masterpiece. You really feel like you're making something real, something visceral. I would have liked to pound that way on the piano as a child. My mother was a concert pianist. Naturally. She was. And that was her destiny for me. Wanted me to be a musician. One day when I was seven, I rose up from the blasted piano, stood on the balcony, and threatened to jump if I had to practice anymore. You lived to tell the tale. 
My teacher ran to tell my mother in the next room. In a calm voice, mother said, Then let him jump. So I went back to my lesson. Does she still play? Oh, she died when I was nine. She arranged a very dramatic and theatrical farewell on my birthday. It was all Shakespearean. Picture it. She's lying in her bed. She knows she doesn't have long. She calls me in. They bring in a cake. She recites Shakespeare in the dark. They light the nine candles. She says to be sure to blow them out all at once and to make a wish. I blow them out and the room is in total darkness. I expect to hear her voice. When I turn on the lights, she's gone, unconscious. She died two days later, never awakening again. And I realized I had forgotten to make a wish. What would you have wished for in that moment? I suppose for her to speak again. To speak and to hear. For her to hear my voice again. That's the narcissism of youth. I suppose, yes. But the theatricality of what she had arranged... She must have meant for me to take a page from that, to make a theater of one's life. It's far beyond anything I've done. Was there a moment for you when you knew you wanted to be a storyteller? A storyteller? You think I'm a mere storyteller? Is storytelling so low? I'm no base storyteller. I never was. I never wanted to be. What did you want to be? There's no need to use the past tense. What do you want to be? What do you think I am? Always have been. Always will be. I only wanted to change the world, no less. Never less than that. You know nothing of me. The world is changed by stories, isn't it? But much more than that. Much more. What do you care about it? You're merely an entertainer. It was bigger than entertainment. Our War of the Worlds? Laws were enacted. Actual laws. One is no longer allowed to structure a story as a newscast. We made people think about how radio can be used. It wasn't we. You went off on your own. I could have contributed. I could have made a better story if you invited me. Of course. I'm sorry I didn't. I've been writing 50 years longer than you have. Yes, of course. There's no replacement for experience. A career isn't built on a flash of inspiration or a whim. It's built up through dedication, constant work. The flame that burns brightest burns out quickest. Your flame is steady. I can only hope to burn as long. I still can't help but feel there's something of the funeral oration in your attitude, storyteller. But storytelling is what convinces people. Of your point. Of all you want to teach and lead them to think. In the world... The winner is the one who told the best story. So Hitler tells the best stories? To his followers. So far. Only so far. I feel quite cold at that thought. Fiction can't be more important than fact. Not more important, but more powerful. Like your own stories. They're probably inventing some kind of atom bomb right now. Stories? Are stories more powerful than bombs? But our instinct... Our common humanity, how we huddle together in the dark, shoulders touching, sharing the glow of this firelight, sharing those stories. 
It matters, doesn't it? Your stories in particular. They're like mythology. We aren't cavemen. It's time we left that cave. I won't be defined by some silly stories I wrote 50 years ago. Not at all. I still have a voice. Of course. What would you say? I've been saying it for years now, warning what's going to happen. I predicted this war and there's worse to come, the damn fools. We are damn fools, aren't we? I loved aeroplanes. Loved them. And as soon as they could, they turned them into weapons. Now you're telling me what? Stories or weapons? I don't know. I didn't mean to say that. I was only trying to defend the phrase storyteller. I'm after the truth. You said make a theater of one's life, like your mad publicity over the broadcast. Is that theater or just a sham? A sham? It wasn't such a nationwide panic. People aren't stupid. You, you made Americans look like a crowd of idiots. Newspapers all over the world, your face on every cover. A sleep-deprived, bearded face because I had to stay holed up in the radio station overnight. We were besieged with press and police. And a great many people believe it was the Germans invading, not Martians. Your script was rather cruel, playing with people's fears. I didn't actually write the script. I didn't even like it. I thought it was rather dull. My story? Dull? Not your story, no. But the script. I was challenged as the director to make it interesting. I think I rose to the challenge. That's all you have to say about it? You think it was an effort on your part? I wrote a whopping good tale. Didn't take any work on your part to make it exciting. Of course not. But updated to the modern era. I didn't write it in the Stone Age. It didn't need updating. I don't need updating. Of course not. Please, let me type this up for you. I'd be honored to. Nothing like that sound when you roll up the fresh page. Let's see. This letter here. My dear Mr. Roosevelt. I'm sure a letter from you, a famous writer, would mean something to him. More than from an ordinary Joe. Do you think I simply write to him out of the blue like a stranger? I'm well acquainted with your president. I've had lunch with him on several occasions. I know these people. I'm not some vacuous celebrity like you. My work matters. It's important. Yes, of course. What do you talk about with the president? He asks my opinion about the future. What do you tell him? I'd be honored to know what H.G. Wells has to say to Mr. Roosevelt. I have two visions, crystal clear visions in my head. One what I fear will happen, and the other what I know could happen if we only came to our senses. I see a world of devastation. The 1950s and 60s will be hopeless, mired in plague and poverty. The war will bring about our worst nightmares, ruin and abject poverty for generations, almost back to the Stone Age. Is there no hope? There is. Arising from that, we can come back. This earth could be a paradise. There's no reason anyone need live in poverty and despair. The only thing we ever wanted was sanity. Men a vision to see the world for what it is. Not a fantasy, not a paranoid nightmare or a fairy tale, but a clear-eyed vision of hope and reason. All it takes is to wake up. All I've been trying these past few years is to awaken people to what could be. 
we could go to the stars. That line. From things to come. It's in the mind, the very depth of the mind, where the revolution has to start. It can't come in drips and drabs, but a transformation, a revolution. The stars are nothing. I remember that line. From my book, The Shape of Things, it was a prediction of the future. I saw the movie. It was marvelous. No, it wasn't. They gutted the heart of my book. They put in a silly love story. It was rubbish. That's your Hollywood story, Kelly. Sometimes they need a hook. My name is hook enough, is it not? Yes, of course. It was on the top of the marquee. H.G. Wells, Things to Come. Instead of respecting my work, they used my name like a brand of soap. I understand. Of course you'd be angry. Not angry. Frustrated. If we did the interview, you could tell us everything. Your predictions, your fears for the future. I already have been. I don't need your invitation. Tolstoy said a man doesn't know his own needs. Doesn't he? A wise thought. Perhaps Tolstoy didn't have as a demanding an editor as I do. I'm running out of time, Mr. Wills. I know my own needs. I need time. You'll have to convince me that this is worth my time. I'm setting this alarm clock for 30 minutes from now. That's all I ask. Just half an hour of your time to convince you that it's for your own good as well. That you need this interview. Mr. Wells, I'm a scientist. I originally studied biology at school. And you are a curious specimen. <laughs> Thank you. That's marvelous. I've never been called a curious specimen. You're a bit outrageous. I've been called a lot of things. Outrageous? Well, that's better than being called a little shit. Telling me what's for my own good. It's not for you to dictate what's good for me. Why is it so infinitely important? No, not at all. I didn't mean to dictate. What I'm trying to offer you is a gift. A gift more precious than anything else. The gift of an audience. You write books, silent words, but to speak aloud to an audience, it's like flying. I do have many speaking engagements. That's why I'm in town. It's lovely, isn't it? Do you love it? The difference is, I engage with truth. What about you? You did theater and radio plays? Make-believe. There was a time you did a great deal of make-believe. Your novels spanned the universe, delighted in fantasy. And why do you keep using the past tense? Oh, I don't know. Did you... Come to flatter me or eulogize me? <laughs> That's marvelous. You have me there. So we don't need to blather on the radio and relive your silly triumph. We've moved on. Water over the dam. You're making movies and I have many more books to write. Would it impress you to know I wrote a book once myself? Did you? On Shakespeare for young people. Quite popular. I don't know of it. It's still in print. I'll send you a copy. Thank you. One book? Well, I suppose that's something. I illustrated it, too. I was originally supposed to be a painter. At least my stepfather wanted me to. We can't put stock in what we were supposed to be. I was supposed to be a draper. Spent many unhappy hours as a boy at the tailor's. My mother thought draper would be a secure living. Let's toast to insecurity in the arts. 
It's good, isn't it? It's rather sweet. I have to be careful. Diabetic, you see. Diabetic? I'm sorry. I take care of myself. I won't offer you a piece of this Hershey's bar, then. Uh, no, uh, thank you. Insecurity in the arts, but you've written your own ticket. You've jumped the line, and you're on top of the world, aren't you? I'm trying. I don't know about jumping the line. I think I've worked for it. You think so? Yes. You've done a conjuring trick. Conjuring? In a way, I do believe in magic. Magic is it? Magic is everything. Everything. It's a higher truth. Do you believe in magic? One man's magic is another man's science. If I can get you to believe in magic, you'll do the interview. Try me. For example, I can read your mind. You can read my mind, can you? I want you to pick a number, a small number, between one and ten. Got it? Yes. Now, multiply it by two. Okay? Yes. Now multiply it by five. Okay, good. Now divide it by your original number. Uh-huh. Now subtract seven. Got it? Yes. Now concentrate very hard. It's coming to me. You're thinking... The number three. Astonishing. Thank you. Astonishing you think I'd be impressed by a schoolboy trick I've known since before you were born. <laughs> really? Since before you were born. Perhaps since before your father was born, too. All right. My father has passed from this world. I'm sorry. No matter. This is fine bourbon. Reminds me of the whiskey I had in Ireland. I told you about Ireland. Yes, you've done nothing to prove you're serious at all, Mr. Wells. This is all tomfoolery. You think your magic is some kind of higher calling. You've only bamboozled yourself. Art is a higher calling. I know you think so. It's a dangerous thing to worship at the altar of art. When a metaphor becomes reality, then propaganda sweeps away everything in its path. That's what your radio broadcast showed us all. Then didn't it matter? As a warning. Then it showed a higher truth. By accident. You certainly didn't mean to. We can't always know. Where art will lead, we do our work and... Damn the consequences? We do our work like blind sculptors who love the cool touch of the marble. We can't always know. We put it out there into the universe, and when it finds an audience, something happens. We can't always know what that will be. It's something in a gift box tied with a pretty blue bow that we give without really knowing what's in that box. Like Pandora's box. And isn't hope the gift then? That's the thing. Hope for what? The hope to go on, ultimately. The hope to go on. That's the first intelligent thing you've said all evening. Really? <laughs> That's a relief. I appreciate that. Let's drink to it. Two artists, mentor and mentee. Careful, you're pandering again. And I was so close. I don't see you thinking you need anyone's mentoring. But I do. I just don't have a good history of it. I have a stepfather, a grotesque sort of mother hen. I do want a mentor. I could use a friend, to be honest. A friend like you who can show me the way, show me what a fool I am. I like how blunt you are, putting me in my place. In Hollywood, everyone lies to you. Everyone's phony. 
And the problem with that is you don't know who your friends are. You don't know who's just sucking up to you to get something out of you. Isn't that exactly what I've been saying about you? You don't mean that. The question is, are you willing to learn to be mentored? Absolutely. On my movie set, I've had a great time with our cinematographer, teaching me all about cameras and lenses. Greg says you can learn everything you need to in 24 hours. You've been on a movie set. I didn't have the power on that I should have. It's frustrating. Yes. That's why I demanded complete creative control for this film. If I could just finish it in the way that it needs to be done. So this interview would help you raise the money? Yes, you understand. But Hollywood, really? It's not an art. It's not so very important, is it? You'd be very interested in this film. With your great respect for journalism? Honest journalism, yes. Not much of that going on these days. That's the thing. It's about a man who inherits a newspaper. A man who comes into great power. It's inspired by Hearst himself. William Randolph Hearst? You worship Hearst? No, no. It's not a hagiography. Just the opposite. A real takedown. You aren't afraid? No. Good for you. Jolly good. It's about a man who conquers the world and loses everything. Loses himself. His youthful ideas. In the end, he's old, alone, and completely lost. He had it all. But as so often happens, he becomes everything he hated, everything he fears. Do you think that's what happens to old men? I don't know. Your American writer, Booth Tarkington, said that 40 can't tell 20 how things will go. The Magnificent Ambersons. Nor can 60 or 70 talk to 20. You mean you can't put an old head on young shoulders? That's exactly what I mean. Are you sure you can pull it off, this rather ambitious idea? I have to. And there's so much more. This movie, you see, it will have all kinds of new techniques, deep focus. In a shot, you usually can't have what's near and far in focus at the same time. That's one of our innovations. And ceilings! Our sets will have ceilings. I don't know if I'm very excited about a ceiling. You should see my makeup for the movie. They're making me into a proper leading man with a false nose to fix my profile, tape on my neck to lift the jowls, arches in my shoes to fix my flat, awkward feet, even a steel corset. It takes as long in the makeup chair for me to be a young, handsome lead as it does to make me an old man of 70. 70 isn't so old. Yes, of course. If I can just pull it off, if I could just... Watch. The film opens with a castle. It's night. A fog is rising. An old man drops a snow globe onto the floor from his bed. He's dying. He utters his last word. Rosebud. Rosebud? Yes. His last word is Rosebud. And for the whole movie, reporters are trying to find out what it means. Why he said Rosebud. I see. Rosebud. You want to know, don't you? Probably a woman. Some woman he loved. That's what you think. So it isn't a woman. He's had his share of scandal. Of course. But it isn't a woman. No? You want to know? Of course I want to know. I could tell you, perhaps, if you agree to the interview. Damn and blast! I couldn't care less about any Rosebud. You do. I know you'll tell me eventually because you can't resist. 
his pet, a dog from his childhood. You're getting closer. His nurse. You were getting there with childhood. A lost childhood toy. Bingo. You understand. I am a writer. I know how things go. Marvelous. All well and good, but still, a Hollywood film. Does it matter in the world today, this world of 1940? We are on the brink, the very brink. We are on the brink. Your film won't matter if we destroy ourselves. Do you think we will destroy ourselves? You came to my lecture tonight. Yes. You said we have to be prepared, possibly for the worst. Do you know what I'd like written on my tombstone someday? What? I told you so, you damn fools. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Maybe it won't even be so long. I may live to see it all happen. I think you're forgetting something, though. What? That in the worst of times, a hero rises. I like this cowboy hat. This is nice. They gifted it to me. You Americans. You think a cowboy will save us? Maybe not one cowboy. Maybe a million cowboys. You make a great deal of your Western myth. It's our history. History? A young country like yours has no history. So you invent myth. We need myth. We all do. You have myth without the long, deep legacy that deserves it. You churn it out like a Mortal T Ford assembly line. If we don't have that deep history, then we have to make it up. Myth is something you have to earn. Not jumping the line. Something you earn. I like this hat. Myth and magic. That will save us in the end. Reason and science. One man's science is another man's magic. What we need is a common sense of wonder. We need to go back to magic. Here, I'll try again. Let me show you. Do you have a coin on you? I never seem to have any money. I take this paper from my pocket and fold it. Now watch the coin closely. Here, open the paper. You can't say you know how I did that. What the blast is this? Oh, my telegram. That isn't for you. Good luck getting HG interview. Stop. Worth a lot of money. Stop. Be sure to ask about Margaret Sanger. Hot stuff. Stop. Margaret Sanger, you do get around. Who is Mank? My writing partner on the movie. I was so excited. Damn and blast. You are an outrageous little... Shit, I know. Worth a lot of money? That's all it would mean to you? You come here and pander and lie and... You think I'm using you? Yes. I should have said, I should say, I'm grateful to you. You made me famous. I know you did. And without you, I wouldn't be in Hollywood. I wouldn't be making this movie that's going to launch my career. Without you, I'd be spending my days in New York, racing around between different radio stations and nights pouring all my salary into theater productions that play for a month and disappear. But now I can make something that lasts. Something permanent. Performances that live after we've all moved on. Lights that don't go out. It's a dream you can hold in your hand. Replay over and over in the editing room. When I discovered movies, 
I was making a film for a play production. I spent a month with coils of film all over my room, like the clothes of a lover who's just disrobed, the anticipation and the repetition, to watch over and over and refine that technique, trimming out every extraneous moment until it's only the act, the moment of pure action, pure dream action. I'm using you? Maybe I am. I think I'd sell my mother to keep doing this, to live this life, to dream this bright and shadowy dream. I'm pleading with you, hat in hand. My hat. Your hat. I would advise you to forget Hollywood. It will break your heart. Run as far away as you can. And do what? Anything. Radio, theater, anything else. I've already, well, conquered those things. Conquered? Art isn't about conquering. Isn't it always about conquering? Conquering whom? The ghosts. Hardly made a dent in this bottle. Another? Uh, no, thank you. It's getting late. I still have time on the clock. Now that I've accidentally insulted you, I must have the chance to make it up to you. I haven't typed your letter yet. I'd be honored to know what you have to say to our president. You're running out of time. Thank you. Maybe you should pursue something less expensive. That's the thing. I'm in love with a very expensive mistress. My mistresses have never demanded expense. Margaret Sanger, really? She's nice and a sarong on a rainy day. I have a photograph. She's handsome for her age. She's not so old. <laughs> no, not so old. And no one minds? My first wife minded, so she let me go. My second wife and I believed in free love completely. She's gone now since 27. I'm sorry. My wife is divorcing me. Apparently, I'm overfond of ballerinas. Ah, that's too bad. I don't know if it was really the ballerina. She knows a man wants a new audience. That's what we really dream of, isn't it? Not a fresh body in our beds every night but a new audience for our stories. I don't know about that. The sexual instinct is a very important drive for an artist, a deep well of our creativity, a source of passion and power. Some women understand that. Yes. Would I have a piece of that chocolate? Would it be all right? A small bit won't hurt. The idea that a sexual affair should ruin a man like Hearst is barbaric. So what if he took a shine to that actress? What should it matter? You don't think she just made a fool of him? She is a silly little thing. I've met them, of course. Had lunch at the castle. That's fascinating. He followed her around like a lost puppy. He is a lost soul. A tragic figure. Yes, a lost soul. That's what my movie is about. I could use a proper meal. I have peanuts. Oh, good. Give them here. Though they'll make me thirsty. Let me give you some water. Pity we don't have ice. Why are you Americans so obsessed with ice? Cold drinks aren't good for you. 
A cold drink is America's contribution to civilization. <laughs> You're right about that. As useless as everything else. Like the extra E in your name. You know my name was spelled like yours, or would have been. My father changed it out of spite against his parents. So, he was an independent, a free man. My father was a free man, and a drunk. Very absolutely a drunk. Drank himself to death, or maybe I killed him. He invented the automobile, you know. Why do I not believe you? Well, it was something like that. We have more than our last name in common. H.G. stands for Herbert George, doesn't it? That's right. My first name is actually George. George Orson. I was named after two homosexual men my mother met on a cruise in the Caribbean. They were in theater or something. Is that true? I'm not sure what's true, but it's a good story. And a good story is worth keeping. I have a feeling stories accrue to you like wind-blown seeds. Call me a dandelion. <laughs> What do your friends call you? H.G.? Bertie. Bertie. I'll call you Mr. Wells, of course. And I you. What will our children say about us, I wonder? You have children? One. A baby girl. Keep her close. Yes. They can be headstrong. My daughter is so stubborn. I give her my best advice not to marry this young fool... And just as you please, she marries him as if my opinion didn't count. Do you understand young people today? I barely understand myself. You have a daughter. I thought you had sons. I'm being indiscreet. My natural daughter. Ah. I wasn't happy with her mother's choice of husband either. But she's always said it was worth it to have our honor, Jane. No regrets. That's good. I envy her. You're rather young to regret anything. Your letter to our president. We need to get to work. We're running out of time. Yes, running out of time. That's the thrust of my letter. Why don't you read this letter aloud to the nation? For our interview, an open letter. I prefer the intimacy of a private communication. The public isn't often ready to hear the whole truth. I held back in my speech tonight. It won't do to overwhelm people. I suppose I've experienced that. In your foolish way, yes. Enough tomfoolery. I've tried in the past to warn the public, and all it got me was that silly movie. It's a pity your film didn't say what you wanted it to. It was a frustration to predict everything. Do you see this book? I'm sending an autographed copy with the letter. I wrote it in 1906. In the days of the comet... You wrote it before things to come. Yes. In it, I predicted the Great War. I predicted the League of Nations and also its failure. And the current war. Don't people see what's coming? A horrific war that will destroy Europe. After the war will come plagues and generations of poverty and despair. Worse than the Great Depression. Do you think so? I know so. I was right about the other things, wasn't I? Yes. I remember in the movie, all those predictions... And that marvelous ending as they fly to the moon. The stars are nothing. Which shall it be? Which shall it be? Really soul-stirring. Bah! They didn't let me get in a word about how the movie should be made. They left out everything important. 
I had no voice. I had things to say, have things to say. But your wretched Hollywood made a mess of it. I'd have given anything for them to make the movie the way it should have been made. Then let's make it the right way. See here, this book, in the days of the comet, that's the film to make. You've read it? Of course. In a way, it led up to things to come. It was every bit as important. Prescient. It does have a dramatic story, visually. That's what I was thinking. It would make a fantastic film. If I could trust anyone to do it. What we need is what they call a treatment. You think so? We'll figure out the whole thing, and after my movie comes out, we'll follow it up with yours. In the Days of the Comet, by H.G. Wells. Remind me, the fellow's name? Willie Leadfoot. Ah, yes, Willie Leadfoot. A poor young man scraping along, right? Yes, you remember how he quits his meaningless job? He can't afford to get married. Yes, living with his mother. The sainted, church-going mother. He doesn't believe in the church. It was so moving to me. Their conflict? Yes. So emotional. It came from deep inside you. You're right about that. My own experience with my mother. I knew you had to be drawing from life. You're an unbeliever. She cried when I told her I was an atheist. But she comforted herself knowing at least I hadn't done Catholic. Ha! <laughs> but what about in the middle of the night? In the dark night of the soul? I sleep peacefully. I'm glad. I envy you. No ghosts. You said something about your father before. Willie Leadfoot, poor, an unbeliever, and in love. Yes, Nellie. Right, Nellie. That was so moving, his pining for her. Pining? Yes, that's it. And... That rich idiot, Varel. Varel, yes, his hated rival. You understand jealousy so well. Another irrational emotion. I don't get jealous, but I see it everywhere, and we must stamp it out. You see? Yes. Your book makes that so clear. I shocked people with it when it came out. We'll make quite a stir when this film hits those small towns with their provincial ideas. That's what struck me, your utter lack of provincialism. We're men of the world. This book lays it all on the line. Rational relationships, to love whom we love freely. Yes, putting that on screen will shock those sleepy villages. Willie's clothes are worn, threadbare. Verrill cuts an elegant figure in his tailored suit. And Willie's mother? Hardworking, long-suffering. Her hands red and rough. She cooks for him, mends his threadbare clothes. I can see it all. This could really work. It's a wonderful story, made for the pictures. Who would star in it, do you think? Some well-known star, or perhaps a new actor, a discovery. That might be jolly good. Who do you think? Either way is a good idea. Now, our friend Willie Leadfoot, a poor man in love, and he has a plan. He buys a gun with his last four pounds. Chekhov's gun. He hasn't the money for the train. It's 1906. He doesn't have a car. Should we keep it in 1906 or update it? That's a good question. I think maybe update it. Yes, it would have more power in a world people are more familiar with. So, no train fare. He has to think quickly. He sees the coins in the drawer while the rector is babbling to him. The babbling rector. I'm excited, Olsen. I see it all. Yes. Because 
when the comet comes... The comet, yes. With your understanding of this technology of film, you could really depict that comet in the sky. It will be a marvelous effect. That brilliant light with its green tail. The green tail, the green light. Running on the beach after Nelly, shooting the gun. Bang! And the green light, the atmosphere thick with the green light. Will you shoot it in England? Hmm? The movie, on location. Oh, I don't know. There are plenty of choices. Right now I'm used to the studio. The green light, how it swallows them. Yes, swallowed in the green light. That's very good. It's all like a dream. Yes, a dream. Everyone falls, ships crash, trains derail. Expensive. Automated machines keep going with no human masters to stop them. The press is running after the paper is used up. The presses bang on in a mad cacophony. Everyone has fallen asleep. Every bird, every animal, fall in their tracks, fall from the sky, swallowed in the green light. Swallowed. Till the misty dawn when everything has changed. The dawning of a new world. Yes, exactly. You have it. The world we could have. The new world. The new world. This is wonderful. I can say what I meant. I can... Tell people what I wanted to say in things to come. This time my voice will be heard because you really understand. You want to be heard. It's always about the future. Yes, the future. This new world. When people wake up, throw off these chains of insanity, come to our senses, a world where government is rational, where laws are hardly necessary because everyone treats each other with basic human respect. This scene with the comet, show it to me. The green light swallows them. He passes out into darkness. You remember how he wakes up? Yes. He sees a mouse. It seems dead. No birds singing. All is dead silent. Birds littered on the ground. He thinks he's died. Shouldn't you be typing? It's all in my head. And act three. A movie has three acts. Yes, the third is that new world of reason and hope. That's what I admire in you. What I admire in your work. This book. That hope for a better world. That's what it's all about. Hope. I've never been stuck in the past, you see. In a way, what I've always been is a historian of the future. I like that. A historian of the future. A futurist. When I was young, it didn't matter that I was poor and stuck in a dirty little shop. One lives in one's mind. Yes. You understand me. The green light and a new dawn for mankind. Yes. So, after the treatment, you write the script? Well, I have to finish Citizen Kane first. Yes, of course. But this is something. I see it. The comet, the green light. So you were very poor as a child? Poor enough. Poor enough that all I had to call my own was up here in my head. That's marvelous. Went to school on government scholarship. The other boys were, well, perhaps like you, well off. Yes, that was me. But still, even when you have money, all you really have is up here, as you say. Yes, I remember one day I had used up my weekly ration, and towards the end of the week I couldn't afford to eat at midday. And one fellow, a dear friend, insisted on paying meat and two veg with a jam roly-poly and a glass of beer. I only let him pay that one time. But I'll always remember that meal. Meat and... Uh, two... Veg... Jam... 
meat and two roly... Bertie? Bertie, what is it? Diabetic, oh God! Maybe food, juice, oranges. Here, here's an orange slice. Can you chew, Bertie? Try to eat this. Please don't let me be the man who killed H.G. Wells. Front desk, is there a doctor in the motel? Uh, uh, I'm all right. I'm with Mr. Wells. He's a diabetic. I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right, Olson. Are you sure? N never mind, operator. I, I think he's all right. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I'm all right now. Thank goodness. Just needed a bit to eat. How are you feeling? You aren't rid of me that easily. Good. There was a time when I was young. I became gravely ill, coughing up a great deal of phlegm and blood. We all thought I would die. I tried to make light of it. When you're dying, sometimes you feel it's your job to cheer up everyone else. But I didn't die. No, you didn't die. It was a tough world in those days. Tough to scrape along, hungry and poor. People so poor they were afraid to hope. Isn't that the cruelest of all? To be afraid to hope. We have a choice to go on like lunatics or to build a future worth hoping for. It's the gravest choice we have. I told your president that. It's wonderful you have his ear. He'll listen to you. I don't care about those romances I wrote when I was in my twenties. I have more important things to say. Yes. But I'm seeing you have a point to put it in some form of entertainment. Maybe that is the way to convince people. I'm excited for it. I'm excited too. We had a real meeting of the minds. You made me see it, the film in my mind. If you want to be a filmmaker, well, you are a filmmaker. I think you will be a great one. Thank you. I'm... Thank you, Mr. Wells. Bertie. Bertie. I'm so glad I didn't kill you just now. You frightened me. You said something odd before about killing your father. Ah, that. Well, the headmaster at my school, who was really the only father I've ever had, suggested I refuse to have any contact with my dad unless he quit drinking. Six months later, he was dead. Officially heart and kidney failure from the booze. But there were whispers. He might have... That's tough, old chap. What about your father? Did he teach you about the stars? <laughs> All he wanted was to play cricket. His dream was to turn professional. Obsessed with cricket. Cricket. My mother left him eventually. She worked as a lady's maid in a grand house. I learned about class and inequality there. But my father taught me the critical faculty, you see. Though he wasn't a scientist or a philosopher, he was a skeptic. Critical. I owe him that insight. If nothing else, teach your child that, not to accept things at face value. I will. So, you've convinced me. I'll do the interview. You can call them and let them know. Mr. Wells, it will be a wonderful interview. Everyone will talk about it. Shall we announce our film? What? 
Our film, In the Days of the Comet, shall we announce it on the, this radio interview? That would be a sensation. Oh, it's early days. We need the studio to commit to backing it and all that. Rest assured, when Citizen Kane comes out, they'll be clamoring to make my movies. I'll be able to write my own ticket, and this will be my next project. So, the radio station is KTSA. We're to be there at 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock? That's right. Be a little early so they can check the microphones. Say 5.45, just to be sure. But how do they know? Hmm? Already? No, we'll be there. It was wonderful to meet you. Ah, the rain has stopped. A perfect hour. And now, the dawn. Orson? Hmm? That scene in my book, in our movie. Yes. When Willie shoots Nellie. You don't think it's too violent? No, not at all. Shooting her dead? What a way to shock the audience. When I got to that part of the book, I jumped out of my chair. And his remorse. There won't be a dry eye in the house. Damn and blast, you bastard, you son of a bitch! What? What? Has everything you've said tonight been a lie? Everything? No, Bertie... You never read my book. Willie doesn't shoot Nelly. Oh, I... He never kills her. Forgot. You never read the book. You were pretending the whole time, you calculated liar. There was no calculation. I you improvised. You've already told them I would do the interview. They're planning on me. They have been all along. These things you need to be scheduled. for your stupid interview to use me to ride my coattails for your own gain for some stupid publicity. For what? To make some meaningless movie? What do I care about your movie? Why do I care if your movie ever gets finished or not? Get out, you lying bastard! Get out! I can't. Go ahead. Let me have it. Who do you think I am? I've written over 50 books. I'm the most famous writer in the known world. I've been everywhere. I've met everyone. Roosevelt, Lenin, Stalin. I predicted this war years ago. I predicted what's to come. I belong to the future. I'm a man of the future. I'm not some dead Victorian. I'm not a relic of the past of steam locomotives and stuffy drawing rooms. I invented futurism. I invented science fiction. I invented free love. I predicted radio. I predicted you. I invented you. I'm still doing it. I'm as relevant as I've ever been. I'm relevant, I'm alive, and I will not let you define me or bury me. I'm as alive as you. I'm as much a part of the modern world as you or anyone. I'm a modern man. I'm the face of modernity. I belong to the future, and the future belongs to me. I'll tell you the truth, for whatever it's worth. Go to hell. Why are you here? Do you see this newspaper? Yes. The article on the front page. The one that says that you and I are both here in San Antonio today. I see it. And do you see whose picture they ran? Yours. Yes, mine. Do you know how old I was the first time I was on the cover of a newspaper? What of it? I was ten. Ten years old. The headline said, Cartoonist, Actor, Poet, and Only Ten Years Old. For as long as I can remember, I was destined to be some kind of genius. This weight of expectation like a boulder, like a wheel spinning, spinning my life. This great expectation that I had to be the boldest, the brightest. I couldn't just write. I had a newspaper column at 14. I couldn't just read Shakespeare. I had to write a book on him at 16. I couldn't just dabble in art. 
I had to illustrate that book and design every set and every poster, right? Every press release and star and every show. Julius Caesar had to be about Brutus because I was Brutus. And now at RKO, I'm the producer, the director, the writer, the star, and every single bastard in Hollywood is waiting for one thing, for me to fail. To fall on my face at last and prove I was never anything but a spoiled child whose parents pretended he was some kind of genius. For too long, a child still, who has to be taught he was never anything but a fake. Who fooled everyone, including himself. I need this publicity to raise the money. I have to finish this movie. I have to outdo myself. I have to succeed at this. This. Now. Or I'm nothing and never was anything. All the publicity and hype was all as phony as War of the Worlds broadcast. And I can't. I can't fail. I can't. Please, don't let me fail. Don't let me fail. Don't let me fail. I'm rather tired. If you would please go and let me rest. Bertie. Mr. Wells. Mr. Wells. I think... There's nothing more. I only ask one thing. What? To think. When you were my age. When you wrote War of the Worlds. You did it. You did something that will last forever. I only want the same. I only want the same. To have what you have. <sighs> it was fifty years ago. Don't you see? It made you immortal. You have nothing to be afraid of. But... Oh, Orson. Now I am frightened. So am I. I didn't peak at 25. You're still here. I... Didn't. You go on, doing exactly what you've called to do. You aren't Hurst or Kane, these old men. You never gave up your soul, Orson. You said it, always a fresh wick in the lamp, always a new match to strike. I'll never forget that. You'll never give up. Neither will I. If you change your mind, it's six o'clock at KTSA. Thank you for the half hour. I hope I haven't wasted your time. I wish I could say you haven't, but not entirely, perhaps. I'm rather tired. Good night, sweet prince. May flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. That's the death scene. I'm not dead yet, Orson. I dare say you aren't. Good night. Good night. Damn and blast if he didn't do it. Damn and blast.
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Charles C. Shaw speaking. KTSA is honored this evening by the presence in our studio of two great men, the Honorable H.G. Wells, world-famous British historian, author, and student of world affairs, and Mr. Orson Wells, the genius of stage, screen, and radio. This is the first time that Mr. H.G. Wells and Mr. Orson Wells have appeared together. In fact, they met for the first time only yesterday in San Antonio. But this is not the first time their names have been linked. Two years ago, Mr. Orson Wells adapted Mr. H.G. Wells' book, War of the Worlds, for radio purposes and, well, you know the rest. Thus, the name of Wells, H.G. Wells, and Orson Wells became linked. Mr. H.G. Wells, in the opinion of many, is the world's most famous man of letters. In this meeting of great minds, I feel rather inconspicuous, and the less I have to say, the better you listeners will like it. But first, could I interest you gentlemen in a discussion of Mr. Orson Welles' broadcast of Mr. H.G. Wells' book, The War of the Worlds? Are you turning the meeting to us, sir? I am for the moment. He's uh, turning it over to us? Well, I've had a series of the most delightful experiences since I came to America, but the best thing that's happened so far is meeting my little namesake here, Orson, I find him a most delightful carrier of my name, with an extra E I hope he'll drop sooner or later, a see no sense in it. And I've known of his work before he made this sensational Halloween spree. Are you quite sure there was such a panic in America, or wasn't it your Halloween fun? <laughs> I think that's the nicest thing a man from England could possibly say about the men from Mars. Mr. Hitler made a great deal of sport of it, you know actually spoke of it in the great Munich speech, and there were floats in the Nazi parade. Not much else to say. That's right. Not much else to say. And it's supposed to show the corrupt condition in the decadent state of affairs and democracies. That the War of the Worlds went over as well as it did. I think it is very nice of Mr. Wells to say that not only I didn't mean it, but that the American people didn't mean it. Well, that was our impression in England. We had articles about it, and people said, have you never heard of Halloween in America, where everybody pretends to see ghosts? Well, there was some excitement caused. I can't belittle the amount that was caused. But I think people got over it very quickly. What kind of excitement? Mr. H.G. Wells wants to know if the excitement wasn't the same kind of excitement we extract from practical jokes. Like when someone puts a sheet over their head and says, boo. I don't think anybody believes that individual is a ghost, but we do scream and yell and rush down the hall, and that's just about what happened. That's a very excellent description. You aren't quite serious in America yet. You haven't got the war right under your chins, and the consequences, you can still play with the idea of terror and conflict. Do you think that's good or bad? It's a natural thing to do until you're right up against it. So it ceases to be a game. Till it ceases to be a game. Now, here's a thought. Some of Mr. H.G. Wells' writings are termed fantastic. And a few years ago, well, might they have been conceived as such? The shape of things to come, which told of a long internecine war, was such a fantasy. 
But, Mr. Orson Welles, do you think it's so fantastic in view of today's events? Certainly not so fantastic a view. The one question that Mr. Wells has spoken of, not only in the shape of things to come, prophesizing a return to feudalism after a long, wasting war, in Mr. Wells's lecture, he said he commenced just recently to ask himself if there was any reason mankind should emulate the phoenix. He did admit that there was a possible excuse for a gloomy point of view and that it would be good to be realistic about it. Perhaps the time had come to look ahead, since the future, Mr. Wells's future, which we've always adored and never really understood, is suddenly upon us. We are living right now in that famous H.G. Wells future we all know about. And wasn't it you, Mr. Orson Wells, that presented for the first time in modern times a play without scenery or settings in your Caesar? Yes, that's right. Well, there's no such thing as a play without settings. There's got to be something behind an actor, and you've got to look at something. Very simple settings. I had an extraordinary experience once. I saw Ellen Terry's son. Ellen Terry's son? You mean... His production of Hamlet. You mean Gielgud? No, 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 no. Gielgud is a relation of Ellen Terry. Uh, never mind his name for the moment, but I saw his Hamlet produced in Russia, in Moscow. Oh, the Stanislavsky production. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Awfully sorry. And and that was done with screens and nothing else. And it was done in Russian. I know my Hamlet pretty well. And all the time I thought I was listening to the English play. You, you understand that? Wonderful, yes. Now, now, before we get away from this microphone, tell me about this film of yours that you're producing. You are the producer, aren't you? The art director, you're everything. <laughs> Mr. Wells. Uh, what's the film called? It's called Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane, not C-A-I-N. No, Kane. And this is the kindest, most gracious possible thing to do, what is called in America a plug, and he understands that. <laughs> I don't understand these words. You understand the value, however. Mr. Wells wants me to tell you that I have a motion picture, and he is kind enough to ask me a leading question concerning it. I'm looking forward to it. Very kind, sir. It's a new sort of motion picture with a new method of presentation and with a few new technical experiments, with new methods of telling a picture not only from the point of view of writing it, but of showing it. If I don't misunderstand you completely, I think there will be a lot of jolly good noises and new noises in it. I hope so. I think a few jolly good noises is what motion pictures could well afford these days. I hope you are right, and there will be jolly good new noises. I can think of nothing more desirable in motion pictures. Is that it? Apparently. Twenty-four minutes. What a long-winded introduction. He took all our time. It seems so, didn't it? Well, perhaps it did the trick. I want to thank you. Edward Craig! Damn! Excuse me? The actor whose name I forgot, who did Hamlet in Moscow. I talked about him. Oh, yes. I wish I had remembered. I should have been more prepared. Ah, that's all right. I must have seemed a foggy old man. Not at all. 
They gave us so little time. I thought this was some kind of important moment, our meeting like this. Well, it was to me. Quite. Would you like to go out for dinner? I don't think... Talk theater? No, thank you. I have a train to catch. This was a short stop on a long journey. Yes. My talk is tomorrow night on the future of theater. I suppose you'll miss it now. That's right. Give the ticket to that long-winded announcer, or a ballerina, perhaps. I would have preferred you. Future of theater. But now you're in the movies. Theater won't be as exciting to you. On to the next thing, isn't it? Maybe. You never know. Well, I must be going. Thank you, Mr. Wells. Good day. Are you headed to the East Coast? That's right. Say hello to Margaret for me in her sarong. In the words of a great man, <laughs> I'll uh, say hello for you, if I remember. I have a great deal on my mind these days. So much going on. Of course. Goodbye, Mr. Wells. Goodbye, Mr. Wells. This has been Wells and Wells, written by Amy Kreider, starring Pete Blatchford and Johnny Kalita, with Jeff Breitman as Charles Shaw. Our sound engineer was Alvaro Ledesma, recorded at Mystery Street Recording Company in Chicago, Illinois. For more episodes, please visit continuousdream.com and consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.